Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Good to see all of you again this morning. What an awesome time of worship we've had already. Man, those songs are so encouraging, and those um, passages of Scripture we've read, all centered on Christ and His work. And we're willing that's going to be the continued focus as we look now to God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Looking at verses 1 through 11, as we consider Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus, and once again, have a real creative title this week for the sermon, if you're taking notes, the title is The Temptation of Jesus. So um, if you're not impressed with my creativity after this week, then I don't know how I can help you. Um, I'm like the least creative person, by the way, in this church, so anyway, now that I have made a ter- you know, my terrible corny joke for the day, let's look at what Matthew has to tell us about the temptation of Christ, beginning in verse 1. He writes, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Earlier this week, I read an article entitled, The Bible, God's Owner Manual for Life. In the article, the author argues that the Bible is, quote, like God's owner's manual for your life. Like any good owner's manual, the Bible gives you instructions and you can consult it when you need help, close quote. While there are plenty of instructions in the Bible, more than we could count or keep track of, the Bible is ultimately not uh, an instruction guide or an owner's manual. It's not a how-to guide. The Bible, beloved, is ultimately all about the one we've sang about 
and read about this morning, the Lord Jesus and his work of redemption for his people. All of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 ultimately is centered on him. But far too often in our day, the Bible is not approached in this way. Far too often we approach it looking for a goldmine of practical instructions, or at least a nugget of practical instruction. And our text this morning, perhaps as much as any, receives that treatment. This text is one that hits home for all of us. It's one all of us can relate to, because we all face temptation to sin, don't we? Each and every day, we are in a war against our enemy, the devil. We are in a war against our flesh. And the tendency of many when we read this passage is to view this scene as Jesus providing us with a battle strategy for fighting temptation. Like us, Jesus faces temptation. But Jesus overcomes by responding with God's word. Aha, there's the point. To overcome temptation, I need to memorize and store scripture in my heart so that when I'm tempted, I can overcome like Jesus did. I can't tell you how many resources I've seen on this passage that turns this account into nothing more than that, into a battle plan for fighting temptation. I even wrote a paper on this passage in college from that very perspective. But this misses the point of the text entirely. To be clear, as Christians, you and I ought to resist and fight temptation by God's grace with everything in our bones. James tells us, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. We're to do that. Or consider the testimony of the psalmist, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Striving to fight temptation and storing God's word in our heart to overcome temptation is good and right for us. But that's not the point of Matthew in this text. He's writing to declare to us the amazing news of one who has perfectly fought and conquered temptation and has done so on our behalf. Last week we looked at Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus in which Jesus declares to John his mission. He's come to fulfill all righteousness. He's come to provide for us all sufficient merit like we just sang about so that we may be accepted by God. He's come to obey all the commands of the law for his people and to take away our record of law breaking at the cross. That is the way, beloved, he came to save his people from their sins. Then immediately following the baptism, the heavens open up. The Father declares, this is my beloved Son. The Spirit descends. It's an incredible scene stating to us and confirming to us who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He came to save us from our sins by being our righteous representative. And now on the heels of this scene comes the temptation in the wilderness. It's not by accident either. This encounter serves as a visual proof to us of what has just been stated and what we've just seen in the baptism. He is the one who's come to fulfill all righteousness. And that's true because as we see in our text, he perfectly resists temptation. One who is righteous is one who is free from sin. And one who is free from sin is one who is righteous. And that is what we see about Jesus. We know he is the one who perfectly keeps the law because he is the one who perfectly resists any temptation to break the law. 
And I pray as we walk through this text, as we look at the Lord Jesus who perfectly resisted for us, we will be strengthened and confirmed in our faith as we behold him together. Two parts to this scene this morning. Again, this week I'm a good Baptist and they both start with an S. Very two simple, very easy, two simple points, two simple parts to this scene. The first in verses one to two that we're going to consider is the setting. We're gonna look at the setting. Before the tempter comes to Jesus in verse three, Matthew wants us to get a lay of the land. Uh, for any of my fellow Star Wars fans in here, the opening of each movie is crucial, isn't it? It's a scene you really can't miss because it gives us the lay of the land. It provides for us the background. It tells us what has happened already and what is about to take place. It provides to us the backdrop for the story. It's the same thing Matthew was doing here. Look again at what he tells us in verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. A couple things to note right off the bat. Immediately in these verses, we're struck with the humanity of Jesus, aren't we? He's truly God. But in this text, we're reminded that when Jesus took on flesh, he really was truly man. He wasn't a demigod. He wasn't Hercules. He was fully God, fully man. Without ceasing, to be God, without ceasing to be God, he became what he was not. Became one of us. Two distinct natures, and here we see his human nature in view. His humanity in view. The very fact that he is tempted emphasizes his true humanity to us. Folks often wrestle with this passage for the simple fact that we are told Jesus was tempted. But Jesus was tempted in his humanity as a man. Truly God, truly man. This is no different than when he died on the cross. At the cross, God did not die. At the cross, the incarnate son of God died. He died according to the flesh. And when he's tempted, he's tempted according to the flesh. But we also see his true humanity in the fact that after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, what, what do we know about Jesus? He's hungry. He needs to eat. And this is probably the biggest understatement in the Bible. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Yeah, I think he would be hungry. He needed food. He needed water. He's thirsty. He's hungry. Probably as much as any man could be in need of. But Matthew doesn't just want us to see his humanity. He wants us to see who Jesus is going into the wilderness. As Jesus is led from the Jordan into the Judean wilderness, engaging in this 40-day fast, we are confronted and shown the glory of who our Savior is as our representative. And we see that through a number of parallels being drawn upon here. Right off the bat, there's a parallel between Jesus and Adam. After his baptism, the father says of Jesus, again in Matthew 3, 17, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Biblically speaking, Adam was a type of son in the eyes of God. Luke 3, 38, Adam is directly called the son or a son of God. Adam, if you remember, was tempted by Satan as well. But there are a number of differences between the temptation of the first Adam and the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. The first Adam was tempted in paradise, in a pre-fall world, in a creation unaffected by sin. Jesus, the last Adam, was tempted in a post-fall world, 
a world stricken and affected by sin. Adam was tempted in a beautiful lush garden. No threat or danger of any kind for him to face. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And Mark adds in his account that he was dwelling with the wild animals. Adam had his wife in the garden, a companion, someone to fight temptation with. Jesus is alone. Yet unlike the first Adam, the last Adam, as we know, triumphs. He overcomes in the harshest of conditions. Unlike the first Adam who fell and brought judgment upon those he represents, the son remained steadfastly devoted, ultimately bringing life to those he represents. This is simply, church, a reminder of what Paul will later declare in Romans 5, verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He heads into the wilderness to be the true and better Adam for us. To overcome where Adam did not. Matthew wants us to see that. But he also wants us to see that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Last week we saw that Israel too was called a son of God. Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel my firstborn son. And this son was redeemed by God out of Egypt, set apart as his nation at Mount Sinai, receiving his law to serve him and him alone for all their days. As they make their way through the 40 years of wilderness wandering to the promised land. But all the way they proved to be faith unfaithful, rebellious, disobedient, idolatrous. They promised to keep God's law. They said they would. They said they won't break it. But they did again and again and again. But now here comes Jesus, the ultimate son in the flesh, who like Israel was called back from Egypt. Think Matthew chapter 2. The flight to Egypt. Herod's wanting to kill Jesus. Jesus comes back in fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt I've called my son. And here comes the true and better Israel. Out of Egypt. Now he's into the wilderness. And unlike Israel, the unfaithful son, Jesus will be the faithful son. And really that's the point of Israel's unfaithfulness all along. As D.A. Carson notes, the one son failed but pointed to the son who would never fail. He's the true and better Adam. He's the true and better Israel. There's a final parallel in these verses between Jesus and Moses. Moses was a mediator. He was a deliverer. He fought on behalf of God's people. He led the people out of Egypt. He went to God on behalf of the people. And twice in Moses' ministry, we're told that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. The first was on the mountain when God gave him the law. The second was not long after when he comes down from the mountain, bringing the two tablets of stone. The people were thrilled. No, they're not. They're worshiping an idol, a golden calf. And Moses smashes the tablets of stone and goes back before the Lord. And he recounts this experience to us in Deuteronomy 9.18. And listen to what he says. He says, I I laid prostrate before the Lord as before. Forty days and forty nights I neither ate bread nor drank water. And notice what he says here. Because of all the sin you have committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He's acting as a mediator. He's fasting. He's in 
He's before the Lord without food or water, fasting before the Lord because the people have sinned. Well, here comes the ultimate deliverer who brings about the ultimate exodus, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Why? Because of his people's sin. Do you see what Matthew's doing right here in the setting? Right out of the gate, he wants to show us who Jesus is, that he alone is our perfect law keeper, our fulfiller of all righteousness because he has come to succeed and overcome where we have not. Moses, Israel, Adam, they all failed. That is the reason he goes into the wilderness. He isn't led by the spirit into the wilderness to leave us an example to follow. If that is what we walk away with, we've missed the mark in this text. He's led by the spirit to be tempted on our behalf as savior. He's acting as representative. Think think about a moment to illustrate the, the story of David and Goliath. When David goes to fight Goliath, he doesn't do so to show his fellow Israelites how to kill a giant, does he? He rises up and slays the giant because no other Israelite will stand up to the task. He stands up where no one else will. And that's what Jesus does as well as he goes into the wilderness. He goes to defeat the one who is for us an unbeatable foe. Don't miss that. He's the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, the true and better Moses, the true and better representative and mediator. Well, having considered the setting, we're going to spend the rest of our time now in verses 3 through 11, the remainder of our text, considering, secondly, the showdown. The showdown. I might have picked that title because I'm a huge pro wrestling fan, but I'll let you wonder about that at lunch. (laughs) Having laid the groundwork, showing us who Jesus is, how he wants us to view Jesus, the truth about Jesus, now the truth is fleshed out. Now here comes the tempter and Jesus standing toe-to-toe in the wilderness. And in this scene, Satan hurls three temptations at Jesus, each followed by a response. We're simply going to walk through each of these. The first temptation arises in verse 3. Satan approaches Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Is it sinful in and of itself for Jesus to make food? No. We see that on two occasions in his earthly ministry. He creates food to feed the multitudes. It's not wrong for Jesus to do that. But this temptation isn't about food. Think about how Satan begins in verse 3. If you are the son of God, and remember again what the father has just said about Jesus, you are my beloved son. But now where's Jesus? Fasting, without food, without water, in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights alone, in the harsh and dangerous place. This isn't a temptation about food. This is a temptation for Jesus to distrust the word of his father. And to provide for his own needs out of that distrust. Very similar to how Satan approaches the first Adam in the garden. When he comes to Adam and Eve, he says, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? He's calling into question the truth and the reliability of God's word. And he comes to the last Adam with the same type of temptation. The first Adam, of course, took the bait. 
and rebelled against the Lord. They saw that the forbidden fruit was good to eat and they ate, but not so for the last Adam. Matthew writes in verse four, but he, Jesus, answered, it is written, referring to scripture here, it is written, it stands written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 where Moses is calling upon the people in the wilderness. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. And he's calling back to their mind the rebellion that happened at Massa, where the people demanded the Lord provide water. Or excuse me, had the reference wrong. I'm not perfect, by the way. This is where they, uh, they grumble and complain about manna. In Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, Moses says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Through their wilderness wandering, receiving manna from heaven, that's what they learned. More than anything, God's word matters most. That's the lesson they learned. But for Jesus, this is what he embodied. It it wasn't just ethereal for Jesus. It was the truth of who he was. Jesus cared more about clinging to the word of his father more than his own need for food and water. He loves the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the need for food is not going to deter him. Like Adam, like Israel, like all of us who've all acted to serve our own desires at the rejection of what God has revealed to us in his word, the Lord Jesus holds fast. He holds fast to what his father has just said. He holds fast to what was said at his baptism. I'm his beloved son. In him, I'm well pleased. That's what he's clinging to. Therefore, when Satan comes and says, make make bread out of stones, he ain't going to do it. Why would he? He's the father's beloved son. One temptation thrown, perfectly resisted. But Satan goes back to the drawing board, and in verse 5, we come to the second temptation. Matthew tells us in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. The pinnacle of the temple refers to the highest point of the temple complex in Jerusalem which probably was a corner of the complex that overlooked the Kidron Valley. It would have been a drop-off of several hundred feet. In other words, if you fall from that height, you're going to look like the bug that splattered on your windshield this morning. You fall from here, you're, you're dead. And Satan takes Jesus to this high point and says, throw yourself down. Why? Look at the rest of verse 5. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's what Psalm 91 says. You can go and read it this afternoon. But Satan twists the texts, the text into urging Jesus to provoke God to come to his aid. Jesus is hungry. He's thirsty. He's been in the wilderness. Jesus, if God really cares for you, if your father really loves you like he says he does, It'll be no problem for him to save you right here. 
He needs to prove to you that, he, that, that he's faithful, that he's good. But Jesus responds to Satan in verse 7. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This verse, another reference from Deuteronomy, points back to the events of Exodus 17. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, and he's referencing Exodus 17, where the people of Israel demand the Lord to provide them water. Here's that reference I was trying to give you all earlier at the wrong spot. They don't humbly ask the Lord or pray to the Lord to graciously provide. They demand that he come to their aid because he's not taking care of them like he said he would. At least that's their thought. They're grumbling, they're complaining. Why aren't you providing? Why haven't you given us what we need as if he hasn't already? We do the same thing, don't we? The slightest thing goes contrary to what we expect or how we would have planned things and we can easily start demanding that God prove himself to us. I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. I thought you were gonna provide for me. Show me. Prove you're faithful. But unlike us and unlike Israel, Jesus refuses to do so. He's not going to put his father to the test. Why? Because he actually rests in the words of Psalm 91. He will not be twisted by Satan's twisted application of the text because he rests in the promises of that text. And he's not going to entertain this temptation for a moment. So, two strikes thrown, both hit out of the park by Jesus. But there's a third and final temptation in verses 8 and 9. Matthew tells us, Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now what mountain is in view here? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. What is sure is that this seems to be a supernatural vision of some sort because, after all, you cannot literally see all the kingdoms of the earth from one mountain. This is supernatural in nature here. And so Satan gives Jesus, as it were, the survey of all the kingdoms of the world and their beauty, their splendor. Notice there's not, there's not a mention in here of all the fallenness of these kingdoms either. It's only the good. And he tells Jesus, if you will just but fall down and worship me, I'll give all of it to you. If you will esteem me and worship me as you do your father, then all of this belongs to you. But this isn't just a temptation to idolatry, though it is. It's a temptation to idolatry with the promise of glory beyond compare. And for Jesus, this was a temptation to bypass his death. Upon the completion of his work of redemption for us, Jesus is exalted. He's given all authority in heaven and on earth. Right now, he reigns over all things. We know that. But at this moment, he's still on the road to the cross. And the cross comes before the crown for Jesus. If he is to be the king who reigns forever, he must be first the, the savior who suffers for his people. And this temptation from Satan is a temptation to bypass all that. It's a promise of glory without suffering. And really, really what Satan has given to Jesus here is a version of the prosperity gospel. But of course, this promise is empty, isn't it? All the kingdoms of the earth are not Satan's to give. But he offers it. Remember, he's the father of lies. He promised the first Adam, 
And he promised Eve that if they ate the forbidden fruit, what? They would become like God. Not true, by the way. And Adam and Eve found that out the hard way. How many times have we fallen to the lies of the tempter? For empty promises. How many times have we pursued sin for the joy that we thought it would give us? Or the payoff we thought we would receive? But not Jesus. Jesus rebukes the tempter in verse 10 and says, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Once again, Jesus references the book of Deuteronomy. This time, Deuteronomy 6.13, where Moses instructs the people of Israel, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Perfect allegiance, perfect reverence, only to the Lord always. That was what Israel was commanded to do. But these were instructions Israel only heard and received. They never fulfilled it. They never obey. They never served only the Lord. That could never be said even of the best that Israel had to offer. Same for us. God made us for his glory to love him supremely with all that we are. We have not. We, we may not have been offered all the kingdoms of the, of the world, but we've all engaged in idolatry seeking to give our highest devotion to something else other than the one who made us. As John Calvin put it, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. But while we have all acted idolatrously, giving our love and devotion to something or someone other than God, Jesus doesn't, not even for a second. Without missing a beat, he rebukes the tempter and doubles down on his resolve to serve his father. He's not going to be deterred even by the greatest of promises. He's perfectly obedient. He sends the tempter out of the wilderness defeated. As Matthew tells us in verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's amazing. For the first time, Satan has encountered a man he cannot beat. Satan, who deceived Adam, who is the father of lies, walks away utterly defeated by Jesus. He doesn't even land a blow. That's why I was tempted. I was wrestling with this last night, whether I should call this a showdown, because it's not really a showdown. It's much like to reference Superman once again. I love superheroes. But Superman, in the comics, the first time he's shot, you're like, oh no, the hero's being shot, and the bullet just crushes against his chest. It's good news if you're the one being saved. It's really bad news if you're not. And it's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? And it's the same way in this text. Here, the, the greatest enemy of God's people, the one who has plunged humanity into sin by his deception, and Jesus, the Lord God Almighty, toe-to-toe in the wilderness, and it's no match. It's no match. And all this is to validate for us what has been said about Jesus that he really is the one who came to fulfill all righteousness for us, that he really is the true and better Adam, the true and better Israel, who acts for us as the true and better Moses to reconcile us to God. To use Martin Luther's language, to borrow from the hymn of mighty fortresses our God, 
this text remind us, reminds us that the right man is on our side. This text assures us, assures us of that, that he is our rescuer, our deliverer. I love what Chad Bird says in regards to this triumph of our Lord in the wilderness. He writes this. He says, Every fiery arrow shot from Satan's bow was doused in the water of the word. Heaven and hell stood toe-to-toe, and hell was left dying in the dust. That you, O man of dust, might stand toe-to-toe with God and be embraced by him as a beloved child. That's what this text teaches us. And Christ will continue to triumph. Knowing the rest of the story, we know that this will continue to be the path of our Lord's life. Temptation, opposition. Satan doesn't stop after this scene. Luke tells us in his account of this scene in Luke 4, verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. If you read a few chapters later in Matthew's gospel, after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, Jesus begins to openly speak about what's going to happen in Jerusalem in a short time. He begins to speak frankly about, with his disciples about his crucifixion and resurrection. And Peter does not like what Jesus is saying one bit. So he begins to rebuke Jesus. Matthew 16, 22, he says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Sounds good in theory, right? He loves Jesus. He loves his master. But what does Jesus say? Verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Satan was at work. The tempter was at work in the lives of his disciples even, trying to thwart Jesus' mission by any means necessary, but Jesus triumphs again and again. No matter what Satan throws, no matter what scheme he devises, Jesus triumphs every time. He's going to continue to perfectly resist and perfectly obey, culminating in his death on the cross, where just before he breathes his last, he cries out with a loud voice those words we sang earlier, it is done, it is finished, to telestai. He defeats the serpent in the wilderness, and he eventually crushes the serpent's head by his death. He perfectly resists sin, perfectly keeps the law, securing for us freedom from our condemnation, right standing before God, and peace with God forevermore. If at any point he gives in, even for a millisecond, none of this is true. If at any point he gives in, there is no salvation to be found in him because he is no savior. Beloved, we are not saved because of our faith. Faith in and of itself has never saved anyone. We're saved only because of the object of our faith. And if the object of our faith fails at any point, he would have shown himself to be a fraud, a phony, in need of saving like the rest of us. And we would be utterly doomed. We would be fools to trust in such a savior. But praise God, he didn't give in. He did perfectly resist for us. In him, therefore, we are saved. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, we are saved by works. They're just not our own works. They're the perfect works of Jesus. And that's true for all who are trusting in him. So friend, if you're not trusting in Christ alone, this isn't true of you yet, but I pray it will be. Like all of us, you have failed to perfectly love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and therefore you stand guilty before him under his judgment 
And it's only by his grace that you're here this morning and you haven't had to answer for your crimes yet. But one day you will. And your only hope and our only hope of escaping that is found in the person and the work of the one we've been talking about. The Lord Jesus. He has done everything necessary to save us from our sins. There is salvation for you in him if you will trust in him. If you will rely only on him to be the one who can deliver you and make you right with God. And that's our greatest concern for you. That's our greatest prayer for you. More than anything, we pray that you will come to Jesus, be forever saved because salvation is found in no other. If you want to know more about that, find one of our pastors or our deacons or any other leader after the service. Ask the person who's sitting next to you. You're in a great place to have questions about Christianity. Well, beloved, as we come to a close of this text, what is there for us in terms of practical application? As I said at the beginning, this is not meant to be taken as our battle plan for fighting temptation. If my goal in this passage is do like Jesus and I'll be good, it'll never be good because I can never be like Jesus. Like last week in Christ's baptism, there are no imperatives for us in this passage explicitly given. Nothing in terms of instruction This text is meant simply to show us the glory of who Christ is. But in this passage, there is encouragement for us in our fight against temptation, isn't there? As we remain on this side of glory, living as redeemed but sinful people in a sinful world, we fight against temptation every day, and our track record is not undefeated by any stretch. If we were honest with ourselves and asked ourselves, when's the last time you sinned? all of us would answer in the affirmative at some point this morning. Many times it feels like we can't even keep our head above the water spiritually. And when we look in the mirror, looking only at our continued failure, it can be utterly crushing. It can lead us to despair. It can lead us to even question whether or not we are really legitimate Christians. We may say things like, I've been a Christian for years and I said that, I thought that, I did that, or I thought I wouldn't be struggling with this anymore by now. Why am I still falling in the same ways I've fallen? Maybe I'm not genuine. And if you're asking those questions, you're not alone. Our faith isn't perfect this side of heaven. I've been there asking those questions myself before. But this text reminds us all that we do not have to despair. We need not despair. Yes, we fail. Yes, we fall short. But Jesus never did. Ought we to grieve our sin? Absolutely. Ought we to be sorrowful? Yes, but not hopeless. Remember what the Apostle John says in his first epistle. 1 John 2.1 These things I've written you that, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and all of us do, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Through it all, we have an advocate. The one who perfectly obeyed for us, perfectly overcame temptation for us, who died under our punishment in our place, and who has given us his perfect record. Forever he's on our side. Forever he stands in between us and the Lord God. In him we are safe and secure. Even when we sin, and even when we sin greatly, And even when we sin in the same way we did last week, we're secure. So we need not despair because we have the righteous one on our side. 
As we sing so often around here, I love the words of Charity Bancroft in that hymn. That's one of our favorites. She says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This text is simply a reminder of that church. He's your sinless Savior who lived and died for you. So as we seek to live for his glory in light of what he's done for us, as we seek to put our sin to death and flee from it and love him, may we look to him moment by moment, remembering that in our fight against sin, the war has already been won. There is no longer any threat of condemnation. God doesn't point the finger at us and say, get to work or else. Christians are not on probation. God's not just waiting for the opportunity to throw us back under condemnation. We've been freed. And so now we can live in the freedom Christ has given us, all because of what he has done. So may we do so. May we fight with the assurance of what Christ has done for us. That's the encouragement of this text. Not go be like Jesus, but rest in the work of Jesus who did what you could never do. What a savior we have. Let's pray. Our almighty God and heavenly father, having considered the good news of what your son has done for us, I ask that you would strengthen the faith of your people and that for those who are lost, you would create faith in them even now. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to conquer on our behalf. What good news this is. May we rest in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.